Welcome to the Halakha Hour here on JRoot Radio. This is the Halakha Hour, fil- not filming, but we are not filming today. We're airing on live on Erev Rosh Chodesh Kislev. Tonight is Rosh Chodesh Kislev. And it's not only tonight, obviously it's Thursday and Friday as well. It's a two-day Rosh Chodesh. Hajman is a full month. Before we get to everything else and the announcements and the halakha class today, let's first give you the regular um, basically numbers. How to listen to us on the air, how to listen to us on the radio, I mean to say on your um, pro app, that means... Okay, and here are the numbers. Let's begin. The studio line is 718-683-5858. If you'd like to call in, we always recommend that you call at the end of the class. And uh, we appreciate all the comments. In fact, today's class is based on a comment we got last week, as we will explain. The text line, which is the best way to send in your comments or your questions, especially if you'd like questions to be answered, is 347-927-8398. To listen to us live on the phone line, you could call 712-432-4217. And, of course, you could go to jrootradio.com as well as the JRoot Radio Pro app. Okay, we're done with that. We move on, on to the next thing. Before we begin the class, I'd like to make an announcement that since we started, since we switched the clock, we've become now into what we call Sha'on Horef. This is the winter time. We have in our shul on Avenue U and Ocean Parkway, we start, usually when we switch the clock, we begin a, our classes on the Benish High Hilchot Shabbat. You can see that you can listen to us, you can come and attend it live. Of course, obviously, it's only open for men. It's immediately after our beat. We have a 5-10 minute Torah on the parasha, and then followed by the Halachot of the Benish High, from the Benish High Hilchot Shabbat. Pretty much the same style as we give over here. Obviously, when it's live, I mean to say when it's in person and we're not being recorded, it's a little bit more free. People ask more. People are able to, uh, you know, we could go into the halakhot a little bit deeper and understand it based on whoever's there. So we invite everybody to come. It's in the shul, Bet Yosef, Ocean Parkway and Avenue U downstairs. We always begin Minha around candle lighting time and followed by Shir HaShirim and Arbit. So... Everybody's welcome to join us, of course, men only, in the winter um, in the winter months. Okay, now let's get to the t- today's class. Really, today's class is clarifying last week's class. We got a phone call last week at the end of the class. It was a nice compliment, but uh, she told us, a lady told us that, you know, we weren't as clear as we usually are. The complicated, the halachot of Mokseh, which are usually complicated, were not organized, were not said very clearly, so Bezat Hashem would like to make up for that. This week, we're going to pretty much repeat the Halakhot of last week, but without reading from the Benish High inside, and much, much more practical, and dealing with how how we should go about in applying these Halakhot, and of course, understanding the reasons of the Halakhot. So today's class is really, last week, the reason why we rushed, because I wanted to really finish it. See what happens sometimes when you think you can uh, rush something, you really end up spending a long time. So, we will finish the subject of the classification of Mukse, Parashat Miketz, and the Benish Hai. Next week, we'll go on to our next subject, which is maybe Parashat Vayigash, or perhaps Hanukkah already, because it's right around the corner. In any case, let's give you the subjects that we will speak about today. Beginning... With leftover foods in halakha, how do we look at leftover foods on Shabbat? Number two is how do we clean up the table on Shabbat? And then all the halakhot that pertain to such things. And we have extra time. We'll discuss maybe a few other points in Mukseh that are not necessarily mentioned in the Benish Haiba. It's very, very important for us to know in any case. Let's begin with the following. We mentioned last week already from the Benish Haiba. It's really from Maran, Shulchan Haruch. And it goes back not only to Maran, but it comes back also to the Gemara. Now, Lachat tells us the following. Let's pay attention very clearly. Any leftover food, when one finishes his meal, that leftover food could become mukse. Could become mukse because we'll clarify when and how. In a case where it does become mukse, what kind of mukse does it become? And the answer is it becomes mukse 
Mahmat Gufo. As we learned by utensils that break on Shabbat, sometimes you could have something that breaks and becomes Muqsay Mahmat Gufo because now it's not fit for anything. In general, we say food is not Muqsay. Any food is not Muqsay. Not it's the Khalis It's nothing. Hakamim were not gozer on food. But sometimes the leftover food or certain leftover food could become completely muqsay, the worst stage of muqsay, and that is known as muqsay Muhammad Gufo, where it would be normal, under normal circumstances, a person cannot handle it with his hand in a normal fashion. It cannot be moved for any purpose, like all the laws of muqsay Muhammad Gufo, like the way we deal with stones, rocks, money on Shabbat. As we explained in the first class, it's muqsay Muhammad Gufo cannot be moved, not for the place, where the item is, and not because I want to now use it for something, because it's not usable. It's Mukseh Muhammad Gufo. Question is why? How come this food, this leftover food, has become Mukseh? Two seconds ago, I was eating from it, and now you tell me it's Mukseh. And the answer is because this food is not fit for human consumption. So since it's not fit for human consumption, people, humans, do not eat it. Therefore, it turns now into Mukseh. Are there exceptions? Yes. There are exceptions that although food can become muqsay when it's not fit for human consumption, uh, consumption, it could become not muqsay. It could still be in the status of food when it's fit for animal consumption. That's a general introduction. This pretty much is going to clarify everything else. So let's repeat it one more time. Halakha is that leftover foods in certain circumstances could become muqseh and it's the worst level of muqseh, muqseh Muhammad Gufo. I want to say the worst, it sounds very bad. It's a more stringent level of muqseh. <coughs> the reason is because <coughs> it's not fit for human consumption. Exception is when that food is fit for animal consumption, as we will see by Zatashim. So let's Take a look at our Shabbat table after we're done eating, before we clean up, before we start singing the song, clean up, clean up, everybody do your share, right? Before we get to that song, let's look at our table. What do we see on our table that's leftover from foods? Uh, you'll agree with me or disagree, you'll let me know, but basically we could categorize our leftover foods. I'm talking at, again, foods. I'm not talking about disposables as like such as cups and forks and plates are plastics or, or the soda bottles i'm not dealing with that right now i'm dealing specifically with food that we've eaten beforehand okay at the leftovers we'll see that there are three types of leftover food there's one type let's call it type number one that's food which is fit for human consumption if you would eat it or not, it's a different point right now. But it's fit. It can be eaten. It's edible by a human being. Let's say, for example, small pieces of meat, chicken, rice. Even though it's a few grains, but those grains are fit for human consumption. It could be eaten by a human being. That's type number one. Second type, second category of foods left over on our table, after we eat that is, our foods, although not fit for human consumption, they are fit for animal consumption, such as soft bones. You know, when you cook chicken for a very long time, the bones become soft. Although you tell me some people actually eat the bones, so you're right, chicken bones, it could might even be in category number one because some people actually eat chicken bones. But let's talk about bones that even have, uh, you know, that basically humans will not eat it, people don't eat it, but animals do eat it. Or some shells, basically, of some foods, peels of fruits, that the animals will eat it, but humans will not eat it. Included in category number two, which is not fit for human consumption, but it is fit for animal consumption, are also crumbs of bread. Pieces of bread, in general, we say under the size of a kezait. We'll discuss this later on. Third category of food. Look, you're looking at your table, then when you see the leftovers... You could, the third type of leftovers are things that are not fit for humans and they're not fit for animals as well. That includes things that are hard, like eggshells, hard pits, or hard bones that have no marrow inside of them. All these are not fit, not for humans and not for animals. Okay, so let's repeat again very quickly. The three categories of leftover foods that we'll see on our table are Category number one, foods which are fit for human consumption. 
Category number two, it's not fit for human consumption, but it is fit for animal consumption. An animal could technically eat them. And number three are foods that even animals cannot eat. What is, why would we divide it up in such, such a way? Why do we make it into three categories? And the answer is because the halakha differs by all three of them. In case number one, in category number one, where it is still fit for human, it's still fit for human consumption, okay? Then in that case, the food is not mukse at all. It's fit. It can be eaten. It's edible by human beings. It's the gezerah of macha, the gezerah of mukse did not apply to food, as we mentioned in the past. Category number two, where it's not fit for human consumption, but it is fit for animal consumption, Animals can eat it. That case, it's technically not mukse. Why do I say technically not mukse? Because you need a condition. We'll talk about that condition later on. So foods which are not fit for humans, but they're fit for animals, are technically not mukse. And then final category, you guessed it. The ones which are not fit for humans or animals. That's what we mentioned in the beginning of the class. Those Types of mukse, those types of leftovers are 100% mukse. They're considered mukse mahmat gufo. Wow, mukse mahmat gufo. What do you mean? We can't clean it up. We can't leave it. We can't touch it. So we obviously have to learn and how to deal with such items on Shabbat. How do we clear the table from foods which have become now mukse on Shabbat? What do we do with them? Can we just pick them up and normally we'll deal with all that? But is that the shame? We'll discuss it. Now, based on what we said, we have a question. You told me that the foods which are left over in category number one, which are fit for human consumption, are not mukse. Why? Because it can be eaten. So if they're not mukse, I can pick it up. So that means if I have some rice spilled on my, you know, you know, sometimes people eat the rice and, you know, they, they seem to forget the borders of the, of the, of the plate, especially when kids are eating and it goes all over and it spills over the plate and it's all around. So you pick up the plate, but you see all around the small pieces of rice, some sauce or whatever. So that food right there, it is fit for human consumption, but who's going to eat it? It's disgusting, especially, especially when it's not your leftover, it's somebody else's leftover. Sometimes the kids or sometimes you have a sloppy uh, member in the family or a sloppy guest and they're eating and they're, it's all over and it's disgusting. So you tell me that food, because it could technically be eaten by human, is, is not mukse. That's, you know, and that's, that's disgusting. So the answer is, yeah, it's not mukse. You know why it's not mukse? Either because somebody could technically eat it, and you tell me, no, nobody's going to eat it now. Fine, if nobody's going to eat it now, and because it's disgusting, so I have another reason why it's not mukse. We introduced last week the concept graf shalre'i. We'll elaborate a little bit on it today. The halakha tells us that when something gets so disgusting in front of you, then you have a heter to move it out of the way. You know, it's funny. It's like, you know, when you push yourself, when, when the mukseh pushes yourself over the edge, it becomes mutar in a way. Usually things are not fit for anything are mukseh, like stones and, and whatever and dirt and all these kind of things. They're not fit for anything. When something that's usually, even though it's mukseh Muhammad Gufo, if it's so disgusting that it's in front of you and it doesn't have to be unbearable, but I believe on the level of, of repulsive, it's not nice. Uh, you would take it away. And obviously this is relative to the person. Some people live that way their whole lives. So for them, it's not graf shadahi. Other people, a little bit of them, iksam. So that it is a graf shadahi. Graf shadahi, this concept known as graf shadahi tells me that if I have something that's repulsive in front of me, and I'm obviously I'm planning to sit there or I'm planning to stay there for Shabbat, even though it's mukse, because of its repulsiveness, I could pick it up, Normally, in a normal fashion, with my hands, and move it out of the way. It's out of the category of mukseh. The hakamim pushed aside the laws of mukseh, the, uh, they, 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 the forbiddenness of not moving mukseh. They pushed it aside so you could pick up this item and move it out of the way. When it's classified as graf shadari. So now, we come back to our mess around the plate that came from uh, you know the sloppy person. So it's disgusting, right? So disgusting is not, nobody's going to want to eat it. Even though it's technically edible, but nobody's going to want it because it's disgusting. I have a second reason why I can carry it. I can move it out of the way because it's graf shel re'i. 
This, by the way, would apply in a different case as well. I'll give you another example that's beyond the Shabbat table. You know, when you have these kids that are almost potty trained or, or on the way to getting potty trained, everybody has such an experience where the kids, unfortunately, either don't make it to the bathroom all the way, right away or sometimes they'll just take off the diaper, which is full of their waste, and just drop it right there in the center of the living room or in wherever it is. So it's disgusting. Ah, it's graf shalrai. I mean, ah, it's the mukse. It's not ra'u for anything. You're right. That waste is not ra'u for anything. It's worse than stones. But in halakha, since this would fall under the category known or the concept known as graf shalrai, I have permission to move it in a normal fashion. I don't have to go and pick it up. I don't know if you want to pick it up in a normal fashion, but you have the heter of picking up a dirty diaper. You have permission to pick it up and throw in the garbage in the normal way. Of course, you want to wear gloves for your own sake and everybody else is going to shake your hand. But otherwise, you know, the heter is there to handle it in a normal way. This concept is known as graf shari. This doesn't have to only apply by rai, by the waste, human waste. This could apply by anything that's repulsive to a person. In the Shabbat table, when I have things that have, you know, that leftover foods or water shells or anything that has become disgusting, I can pick it up and move it out of the way. Okay? So that's why we said that leftover food that is fit for human consumption is not mukse, either because technically it can be eaten. Even if you want to tell me nobody would eat it because it's so disgusting, it's other people's leftovers, it will be mutar anyway because of graf shadrai. Now, we mentioned that pieces of bread, or really, I didn't say pieces of bread, we said crumbs of bread. Crumbs of bread are in category number two. And you probably will be asking yourself, one second, crumbs of bread are not fit for human consumption? Crumbs of bread, are, of course, they're fit for human consumption. Everybody eats small pieces of bread. So why did I put it in category, category number two, where it's not fit for human consumption, but it is fit for animal consumption. So the source of this halakha comes from Shohan Aruch, really. It's not ours. It's Shohan Aruch. It's from the Gemara. And it talks about over there that pieces of bread are less than the kezayit, as Nisim Karalis explains, at the end of the meal, not in the middle of meat eating. No food, by the way. All these foods, which we say it's fit for animal consumption, in the middle of meat eating, they don't become mukse. Only once I finish eating and I stopped my food and I'm done eating, I don't have to actually bench, but I'm done. I finished eating. I'm I'm planning to clean up. Then we look at that food and we give it the status of you know mukse if we have to. When in the case, although pieces of bread that are under kezayit really are technically edible, the reason why they become mukse is because people don't plan to eat them. This is specifically by bread, by the way. We don't find the stringency by any other types of food. Nebuchadnezzar, for example, brings now in the case where I have a bone which is not edible. By animals. Animals don't eat such a bone. It's too hard. So that would fall into category number three. It's leftovers which are not fit, not, not fit for humans or animals. So it should be technically mukses. It says in Mishnah if I have a piece of meat on it, a small piece of meat on it, so that then it saves it from becoming mukse because humans could eat that piece of meat. How big is that piece of meat? Small piece of meat. So you see from here that even a small piece of meat, even though it's under gizayit, it will not be... Mukse. So why do we say by bread if it's under kizayit, it's mukse? And the answer is because in general, people don't eat them. It's so small of a piece, it becomes like a crumb, and crumbs people don't eat, they throw it away. So that's why, although you will not eat it, maybe you'll give it to birds, you give it to animals to eat, but since you're not going to eat it, so it becomes in the category number two, it's not fit for humans, although it's fit for animals. However, if you're such a person that will eat those crumbs, then we don't care about anybody else in the world. Even though you're, my, I'm not saying you're weird, but let's say you'll be weird. Let's say nobody else does it. It doesn't make a difference. If you're planning to eat those, the, those little crumbs, let's say you want to make chicken stuffing out of it. I don't know what you want to do with it. But you're planning to eat it yourself. Or as the Segulaz brought down, that a person should even eat the crumbs for ashirut, for wealth. So then let's say you're planning to keep those crumbs and I'm talking about little, little crumbs even. You plan to eat it? Even though you're not eating it now, but you plan to eat it later on, even after Shabbat, those crumbs will not be mukseh. This rule that it becomes mukseh only applies to breadcrumbs that you're not planning to eat. And again, it's not 100% mukseh. It's in category number two, which means it's not fit for humans, but it's fit for animals.
And as we mentioned before, in category number two, all leftover food that's not fit for humans, but fit for animals, is not mukse with a condition. What's this condition? What are we talking about? How, what's, uh, what does it mean it's not fit with the condition? Well, let's understand the reason. And from the reason, we'll understand what the condition is. Why is it that if it's fit for an animal, it will not be mukse? You guessed it, because I could feed it to the animal. Oh, so since I could feed it to the animal, so then, therefore, there you go. I have my Now it's food, although not food for me, but it's food for an animal. I'm not planning to eat it. I'm done. I'm not going to save myself these little crumbs. I'm going to take a nice big pita or a loaf of bread. So why would I need those little crumbs? Now that I can feed it to the animal, with that is a heter for me to move it because I could technically give it to an animal. So therefore... What's this condition? The condition is, as all the Sfei Halachadis nobody disagrees on, is that in order for me to be able to consider leftover foods in category number two, which are only fit for animals, in order for it to be considered not mukseh, I will have to be in an area around animals. If I'm in an area around, if I'm in an area where there are no animals whatsoever, for example, Benish High brings the example of a guy's on a ship. Guys on the ship, there are no animals around in those days. I don't know, maybe today they'll bring dogs or whatever. But let's say you're on a cruise line. Of course, everything is kosher, you know, there's uh, separate swimming and, and uh, 100% bet yourself. I'm talking about, you know, the real, real kosher ones. I, I don't know if they exist, but whatever. So let's say you're on a cruise line and there are no animals on the ship, on the boat. So therefore, in that case, you don't have the hit tear over here of the leftover crumbs being not mukse, why there are no animals since there are no animals it's not fit for humans and although it's fit for animals but there are no animals around that food becomes mukse mahmad gufo very important to remember that again if you're in an area where there are no animals around and you have food that's left over which is not fit for human consumption anymore but it's fit for animals doesn't make a difference. It still remains muksev since you could technically not feed it to animals. Okay? So, most people which are on dry land are usually around places where there are animals that are around. The question is, what is what does it mean that there are animals around? So, on a ship, I understand there are no animals around. Although they're deep in the ocean, you tell me that's not really there because you have other issues over there. Fine. But what does it mean that they're around? Where, 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 what does that mean? They have to be my house? Must I own it? Must I actually feed it to the animal? You're telling me now I have to be around animals. Must I actually give the food to the animals? The answer is no. Everybody agrees that you don't have to actually give it to the animals. You don't have to feed the animals in order to avoid the food in category number two from being mukse. But there is a mahlokit though to the guidelines of when we say something has to be ra'u'i behema. See, in category number two, food which is not fit for humans, Nalga says, since it's ra'u'i lemachal behema, what does it mean ra'u'i? Since it's fitting for animal consumption, it's amukse. Question is, what does it mean ra'u'i lemachal behema? So we find that there's three areas where there's a mahlokit in, how much does it have to be ra'u'i? Let's go through all three of them. Let's go. The first case, which the halakha tells us that the animals have to be matsui. What kind of animals are we talking about? It has to be animals that are found. What does it mean found? Says the Mishnah, the food that has to be fit for animals are found. It means it's matsui, it's al-robin adam. What kind of animals are we talking about? Animals that are commonly found by the majority of people. That's how you literally translate the words of Mishnah. What does that mean? I have to take a survey and find out how many people there are in this in the city, and then find out 51% of what type of animal they own? And the answer is no. What means Matsui it's a Robina means it's commonly found. That's how the Ahronim explained Mishnah Ra. These are animals that are usually found around, as opposed, for example, snakes and tigers. Do people have snakes as pets? Yes, you can't deny that. For sure they do. But just because now they have snakes as pets, and some people, I believe there's a tiger lady in Jersey or something. And some people have tigers as pets, and some people raise lions. This does not mean that if I have food which is not fit for any animal except for tigers, snakes, and lions, it's not going to become mukse. 
because it's not matsui, it's a rubana, it's not commonly found. What about dogs? Dogs are commonly found. Do the majority of people who live in your city have dogs? It doesn't have to be. As long as it's come, yeah, you, you, you find plenty of people with dogs. That's called Matsui Etzerob Bene Adam. Now, with this, by the way, they come, there could be a leniency also. Meaning, if you are a person that has a rare exotic pet in your house, let's say you have a tiger. I don't know. Why would you have a tiger? Don't ask me. Let's say you have a tiger. You're raising a tiger in your backyard in the cage, of course. And you eat on Shabbat and you have some sort of leftover food that's not fit any animal. The only animal in the world that could eat this is a tiger. For you, that food will not be mukseh. Even though you're not planning to give it to the tiger, it doesn't make a difference. Since it's fit for an animal that you own, it's not mukseh. However, other people, other people who do not own a tiger... And not in a neighborhood where there are tigers around. So for them, it will be mukseh. Just be, but you who own such an animal and the mukseh that you have in front of you is not, is not going to be, the, the leftover food that you have in front of you is not really going to be uh, mukseh because it could be fitting for a tiger. Okay. Now, the question is, what's called commonly found? You know, let's say I live in a city where... There are no dogs. And this food I have left over is fit for a dog. Right? But I only have cats. So does that work? And the answer is no. In order for this heter to work, remember, that type of animal has to be able to eat it. So let's say I finish my meal and I have some hard bones. Cats will never eat this. But dogs will. And I don't have dogs in my neighborhood. I don't have dogs in my city. In that case, then everybody will agree again. That's going to be muksay. The type also, it's not any animal. The animals are commonly found has to be animals that could eat that leftover. How commonly found they are, we find a mahloket. It's interesting. He says that, let's say you live in a city and you live in a neighborhood in, in the city where around your specific neighborhood, that specific animal. Let's give them a start with the cats and dogs. Imagine you live in a city where dogs are common, but not in your neighborhood. In your neighborhood, only cats are common. In order for you to get to a neighborhood which has dogs, you'll have to walk, let's say, 25 minutes, a half an hour away. Since dogs are out of your neighborhood limitation, then your leftover food, which is only fit for a, for a dog, will be mukseh. That's not called commonly found. However, Acham disagrees. And he brings a proof from the Benish High, so we could put Hakamabadia and Benish High on the same uh, side. They both hold that if you live in a certain city, as long as it's within the city limits, and I could technically walk over on Shabbat, or the animal could get to me on Shabbat, then it will be fine. That means if in my neighborhood I have no dogs, and half an hour away there's another neighborhood over there, they do have dogs. And I have leftover food, which is only fit for dogs. Doesn't make a difference since there are dogs in my city. And I could get to them on Shabbat. They could get to me on Shabbat. That's it. It's called fit for animal consumption. My leftover bones will not be mukseh. Another point to discuss. Remember, we said there are three things when it comes to guidelines of what's called commonly found around us. When the animals are around us. Must be must one be able to feed them on Shabbat? Meaning to say, there's a halakha that we find in Shin Chavdalit that animals which are not owned by you, or certain animals that yeah, yeah, let's take that. Animals that you do not own, you have you have no responsibility to feed them, and since you have no responsibility to feed them, it's asur to put food in front of them. So that's what the halakha says. So based on that, let's say I do have cats, which we all do have, and I have squirrels, which in our neighbors, we all have squirrels and cats. So these animals are very, very common around us, but nobody owns them. I certainly don't own them. And since I don't own them, can I feed them on Shabbat? It does make a difference now if I'm going to actually feed them or not. I want to know right now, since I... You know, these since these animals are not my responsibility to feed, does the heter of Raul Machal Bema that the food is technically fit for animals apply or not? So 
we have a mahloket over here. We have a mahloket between going back to Tehlal David, uh, one of the great poskim, 150, 200 years ago, and of our day poskim, Ravel Yashem, and Vadel Haim Tobim, Harav Nisim Karelitz, they all hold that since, according to Halakha, you cannot feed them. So therefore, if the food that you have is only fit for those types of animals, then the food becomes mukse. Rabbi Yashem says, even if you have animals that commonly eat by you, you don't own them, but you know how some people have cats that walk into their backyard and they put out some food for them? According to Rabbi Yashem, since they're not yours, you can't even feed them. The only exception is by a dog, because we find the Hazal told us, it's a mitzvah to always give food to a dog. So a stray dog, even though it doesn't have any owners, it's a mitzvah to feed them. Everybody will agree that any food that's fit for a dog is not going to be mukse. But if some food is not fit for a dog, it's only fit for a cat, and the cats have no owners, then according to the above post that we mentioned, the food will become mukse. However, Rabbi Scheinberg disagree, and they explain that the whole problem of me feeding an animal on Shabbat that's not mine is because of tarha. Because I'm going to put extra effort. But in the case where I don't have to put any extra effort. Where I'm throwing it out anyway. So what's the difference if I throw it out in the garbage, if I throw it out, if I put it out for the cat? Also, if I just leave it there and I put, I don't put it in front of the animal, Mishabra says, clearly that's mutar. Besides that, you have Rabbi Sal Fisher who says that in order for this heter to apply, we don't need to actually feed the animal as long as the food is fit for animal consumption, that's already good enough to m- save this food from becoming mukse. So, let's review very quickly. As long as I have food that I can feed animals with them, although they don't have owners, although they, they, they're not mine, it's not my responsibility, but since they're fit for me to feed to the animals, since they could technically be eaten by animals, those food are not mukse. But again, with the condition, they have to be around in my city. And number two is, besides being around my city, they have to be fit. The, 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 the animals that I'm planning, you know, that are around my city could technically eat from them if they would like. Now, question is, does the halakha change in our days? Because most people don't take their leftovers and give them to animals. So do we say that since today in our days people don't take their food and give, them to, give their leftovers to the animals, do we say that since we don't do that, we cannot feed the animals, we don't have this heter? This is also, I found, some poskin that are mahmir, but even those who are mahmir agreed that those who are lenient, yes, I'm besides the fact that anyway, we saw that many poskim, like Rabbi Salah Fisher, say that I don't have to actually feed the animals in order to make sure to qualify my food from not being mukse, as long as it's fit for animal consumption. So therefore, let's review very quickly. When I come back to my leftover food, and I look at my table, and I see, I want to now figure out which is mukse, which is not mukse. I look at my table, and I see category number one, food which is fit for human consumption. If it's disgusting, so I can pick it up anyway, graf shari'i. If it's not disgusting, but it is still fit, so then that's it. It's fit for human consumption. Even though I'm planning to throw it out, it's not mukse, I can throw it out. And the examples that we gave, pieces of rice, meat, chicken, food that technically could be eaten. If the food that's on my table is not fit for human consumption, I have bones or crumbs of bread I'm not planning to eat, which are under a kezayit, in that case, it's not fit for human consumption, but it will be fit for animal consumption. It'll be mut- it's still not be mukse if I'm in an area where there are animals that would eat such a thing. So if you live in a city like New York City, where you have a lot of squirrels and cats, and a lot of dogs around you, then, again, even though you don't actually feed them, you could pick them up and they will not be mukse. However, category number three, which are leftover foods that even animals cannot eat, like pits from a lot of the fruits, hard pits of a lot of the fruits, eggshells, the hard bones that have no marrow or anything else or no flavor on them, those are not fit even for animals. Those, everybody will agree. No mahlokin on this. Everybody will agree that's completely mukse. So that's mukse now. What do you do now? What do I do? How do I clear my table from those... Uh, Shells, let's say I have eggshells. 
let's say I have hard pits. How in the world could I clean my table? You tell me it's muksa, I can't move them? Because remember, what kind of muksa is this? These leftover foods become muksa mahmad gufo. Muksa mahmad gufo means that they cannot be moved or handled in any way. I mean to say in a normal way. So how do I clear the table? So let's give you three hetterim. Number one, if the leftover food is repulsive, we already explained that could qualify for graf shadrayi. Graf shadrayi, we said that's a concept in the laws of mukseh. It's a halakhic terminology, which if something qualifies as graf shadrayi, meaning that's repulsive, I, it doesn't, you know, I, I get disgusted by it. I don't want it to be there. I have a hetter to move them in a normal fashion. Even my hands, regular hands, I could pick it up. So if I see there's such a mess on the table or it's even fell on the floor or whatever it is, I could pick it up. If it's a graf sharai, I could pick it up, sweep it, off, sweep it off the table, even in normal fashion, not a problem whatsoever. Number two, the other hetter for me to clean my table, when, again, when I'm dealing with foods or leftovers that are in category number three, which are then not fit for human or animal consumption at all. I can do it by removing the entire tablecloth. Most of us today will eat on a tablecloth, one of those disposable plastic tablecloth. So if I see a lot of dirt and a lot of eggshells and all these kind of things on the table, that, you know, on the tablecloth, that is, and they're all because they're all, you know, unedible. they're not edible, not by humans or by animals. And it's also not a grab sharia, just all over the place. It's not a grab sharia. So then in that case, that means it's not disgusting to me. Since I'm picking everything up all together. And on the tablecloth, I also have some things that are fit for animals because I'm, for sure you find pieces of bread, crumbs of bread. For sure you have leftover rice. And you have all these things together. Besides that, the tablecloth itself, it's technically not mukseh, although it's holding mukseh, but I'm picking everything all up together. In that case, I could clean up everything all together and remove it if I need the area of the table. Again, with that condition. If I need the area of the table, then I could pick it all up and throw it out. Assuming, again, that's not graf shadai. Keep in mind, if it's disgusting and you can't bear it to be there, of course you could clean up anyway. You have that hit there. The other hetter that I have, so this the following hetter applies when, let's say, one or two people are eating by themselves on Shabbat. So I'm neat. The person I'm eating with is also neat. So we don't have dirt all around us. And now I want to clean up. But, you know, I have uh, some eggshells that I put on the side. I have some pits from fruits that I put on the side as well. So then... In that case, I want to take them off. I want to keep the tablecloth on. I don't want to throw it out. It's not so much that it's disgusting. So how do I clean it? And the answer is, what we explained last week, something known as Tiltum Natsad. Tiltum Natsad is, I'm using something that's mutar to remove something that's asura. I could do that. When can I do that? I could do that only if I need the area to, be, to use. That means if I'm taking a napkin, which is not muksin, and I want to move the hard pits, I want to sweep them away, I could do that, I could take them off the table that way, if I need the area of the table. tells us, is mutar mutar. I'm not going to go into it so much, you can look and listen to last week's class, and you'll get more of a clarity on this. So again, if I want to clear my table, I have three ways I could clear it off, leftover foods in category number three. Either, because it's a graph shadrai, it's very disgusting, it's repulsive, I want to move it away from me. Number two, I'm picking it up together with things that are mutar, like taking off the whole tablecloth. When I need the table, I need to put a new tablecloth on. Number three is by sweeping it off the table with something mutar, like a fork, a knife, or a napkin. Since I'm taking it off that way, I could put it all together, I could take it all together and put it away. Some have a question now. If I'm clearing the table, you know, sometimes what people will do, let's say you have seven people eating on your Shabbat table. So now you don't want to, you have everybody's leftovers. Some people, what they do is they take all the leftovers they from each plate, they pile them up all on the same plate, and then they take it, they, you know, put all the plates together, and the top plate will have the leftovers of everybody's stuff, all the junk on it, and they'll take that away and throw it out. Some have a question. How should one go about in 
clearing the table. Should they pick up each plate by itself and then clear the plate over the garbage? Or should they pile everything, all the leftover foods, or can they pile all leftover foods on one plate and take it all together? Not should they. They want to pile it all together. It's much easier. It's easy to do the work. So in this Karel, it says that's not a problem. You know why? Because anyway, you're picking it up because it's grabs, right? It's disgusting and you can, you know, you, you have the hitter anyway to pick it up. So although one is supposed to minimize on his uh, moving mukse, in such a case where you move each plate back and forth, you're not really minimizing anything. Either way, you're going to have to sweep all that away. And especially if you pile all them up and it turns everything disgusting and makes it worse for you, how many you could do it? So, so those who clean their table by piling all the leftover foods onto one plate, it's not a problem of making a grab shadrai because anyway, you're picking it up, you're moving it. It was disgusting probably from before. And it's the same amount of tiltul, if not less. And it makes it also easier. So you have a problem with terha as well on Shabbat. So with those hetterim, Rav Nizakar says, you can continue to clear your table in such a fashion. Here's another question. What if one peeled an egg on a plate in the kitchen on Shabbat? So I'm assuming because it's peeled on a plate in the kitchen, the kitchen's not in front of you. So in order for Graf to work, we mentioned last week, Graf means if it's in front of you, it's repulsive. But if something is not in front of you, so you have no, you have no hit there to move it because it's not repulsive. You're not looking at it. So in the case we have something, yeah, the guy went and he peeled an egg on top of a plate on Shabbat and you have the eggshells on the plate. So now how could you pick that up? Eggshells are not fit for human or animal consumption. So it's category number three. So it's Muqsim Hamad Gufo. I can't pick it up because it's not Graf It's not disgusting. It's only a few eggshells. It doesn't look nice, but it's not Graf Also, I'm not picking it up together with the whole tablecloth, which is carrying something mutar. And for me to sweep it away with Tiltum and Atzad, you know, well, I don't need the place. It's in the kitchen. I don't need that area. So how can I do, how can I clean the eggshells? So to answer your question, first of all, we have to bring a concept that we spoke about last week, and that is called Bitul Keli Mehechano. There is an Isur on Shabbat in the laws of Mukseh that one cannot place something that's Mukseh Mahmad Gufo on a utensil that is otherwise not Mukseh. Meaning, we know that if Mukseh is on top of a Klish Mechtol Heter, so let's take a Klish Mechtol Heter, let's say like a plate. If you have something that's Mukseh Mahmad Gufo on top of it, let's say you have money on top of a plate, so long as the money is on it, the plate also becomes muksay. I can't even move the plate. The plate is holding the money. If the money falls off and the money was not there from prior to Shabbat, then I can move the plate. But as long as the plate is holding something that's muksay, it has the same status as a muksay, even the plate, which is usually mutar. So the hachamim forbade us to place something that's muksay Muhammad gufo on the klis b'lachto leheter. Meaning, for example, I cannot peel an egg and put the shells, which are Muqseh Muhammad Gufo, because they're not edible, they're not fit for anything. I cannot put the peels of the egg on a regular plate, because that's called It's like I broke the plate, because now I can't move it. I have Muqseh on it. Or, it's, as some explain, it's like I cemented the plate to the ground, and that's like similar to Bonnet. It's an Isud banan known as Mebatel Keli so how does one peel an egg? How does one do such a thing? The best way to peel an egg is to go straight over the garbage and peel them that all the pits, all the, excuse me, all the shells just fall off over there. That would apply, by the way, by anything. When you're separating, in a way that's not bore, you're separating something that becomes mukfeh, like peels of certain fruits or the pits of certain things. If you're removing them, the best is to peel them on top of the garbage, let them go straight. In the case where you do have to peel, let's say you have... Six eggs and you have to peel them, they're hot, and you, you can't go over the garbage. You have to do it on the plate for whatever reason it is. In that case, when you must place them on a kli, make sure you put something that's mutar on the plate first. Like, for example, take a piece of bread. Place it on the plate. So now the plate is holding the bread. After when you peel the egg on it, so now you're... Because even after the eggshells are on it, 
you could pick it up. Why? Because you have the bread as well as the eggshells on it together. Since I have something that's also mutar on it, it's not called mebatei kelim nechano. That's in general how you should do it. In our case, where a guy already has done it, someone matir that if you place a piece of bread on top of that plate, now it'll become a basi, the the eggshells become batel to the bread, and the plate is now holding the bread. Someone matir such a way. So in the case where you have to move it, you can move it in such a fashion. Otherwise, you could always, of course, pick up anything that's mukseh. Kilaharyad means in a not normal fashion, in the back of your hand, in your with your wrist, or the like. Okay, one more last halakha. We have a few minutes left. I want to talk about one last halakha. Maran Shohana Ruch brings down in Samanshin Het Halakha Chaf Tet or Lamid. Let me just check. In Halakha Lamid, he brings down, he says that pits of dates in the place where they feed them to an animal is not mukseh because in that place, animals eat pits of dates. What do you learn from Maran? That if you're in a place where they don't feed pits of dates to animals, or let's say you're eating fruits and there are pits that are not edible by any animal, it is mukseh. Where does this halakha come from? It comes from the Gemara. The Gemara said that some rabbis, when they were eating on Shabbat some pits, they would spit them behind them on Shabbat. They wouldn't spit them in front of them, they would spit them behind them on Shabbat. What's the reason they did that? The answer is because the pits are mukseh. So why did they throw them behind them? And the answer is, they didn't want to throw it in front of them. Why? There's a lakha that's known that you're not allowed to make a graf shadra'i You cannot create a situation where something would be disgusting in front of you so you could have the hetero picking it up. I mean to say, in the laws of mukseh, we just learned that when you have mukseh that is disgusting, that's repulsive, you have the hetero to pick it up with your own bare hands. You cannot create such a situation. For example, in this case where the rabbi was eating pits, if he would have all the pits piled up in front of him, after a while it becomes a graf shara'i and it's to move it. But to do that, lechat will be asu. So therefore, as a result, the rabbi spit it behind him. So the question is now, based on this halakha, how do we go out? How do we go around and how do we eat? Let's say people like to eat olives. So when I eat olives, I have the pits afterwards. Pits are not, nobody, no human can eat the pits. And also, animals don't eat the pits of olives either. But there's not only pits of olives, it's pits of any, almost all fruits that are not edible. That includes even apple pits and everything. Now, in apple pits, usually if you're eating an apple, you'll always have some sort of food stuck to the pits of the apple. So you're not, you don't have a problem. But let's say you're eating oranges, clementines, not the seedless ones, you know, the ones that have seeds. How do you take out, what do you do with the pits afterwards? It becomes mukseh. Tell you, major hadush, the shohana rucharav, the graz, he understood from this Gemara, why did the rabbi, Rabbi Ashi, spit it behind him? He understood the reason why the rabbi spit it behind him because he couldn't put it in his hand first. And therefore, he learns from here that when a person's eating fruits and there are pits left over, he should not put it in his hand first and then dispose of it. He has to spit it right out where he wants to get rid of it. Most poskim don't rule this way. Some Aharonim did go with the Shohan Aruch Arav. Aruch Shohan went with him, for example. He brought the same halakha. But the rest of the poskim don't bring it this way. Especially, especially, that if it's going to be disgusting. People are eating and in front of you and you're sitting around people and then you're eating a pits and you're throwing right out. Therefore, although even those who are mahmil like Shohan Aruch Arav will agree and should agree, that if you're eating around people where it's going to be disgusting, don't spit it right out on a plate. You could spit it first in your hand and then place it. Now, in the Gemara, it says that the rabbi spit it behind him. Why the rabbi spit it behind him? Like we said, because in those days, you know, then they swept everything later. It wasn't a big deal to spit food behind you. And nowadays, if you spit behind you, uh, your wife is going to go crazy, your mother's going to go crazy. It's, not, it's going to be a mess. You're going to end up cleaning it up anyway. So it makes no difference if you spit it behind you or in front of you. So therefore, if you're eating pits, you're allowed to spit it out in your hand first. And when you're placing it in front of you, remember, that's really mukseh. So make sure that your place, if you're putting in, let's say some people put it in a plastic cup, the people are eating seeds um, without salt, unsalted seeds, or things of the like, cherries, and you have all these pits left over. And what do you do with them? 
So you want to spit them in your hand and then put it on a plate, you're allowed to. Just make sure, like we said beforehand, to avoid the problem of mebatek limechano, make sure you first place something that's say, like bread or something else, on the plate. This way it doesn't become a problem of mebatek limechano. First put the bread on the plate, and then afterwards take the pits and put them on the plate as well. This way you have the ability to also clean it up afterwards because you're picking up the plate together with the pits and the bread. And this way you avoid the problem of mebatek limechano. That is all the pretty much the time that we have left over. Although I'm looking at the time, I have about two minutes left. So I want to make the, again the announcements. Now, if anybody would like to call in for any questions regarding what is Mukse, how to clear the table on Shabbat and everything else, you could call into the number 718-683-5858. We'll be here for another 10-15 minutes to answer your questions on Mukse in specifically, but in general, if you have any other questions, off the air, that is. If you have, uh, if you'd like to text in, you could text in 347-927-8398. The questions uh, that come in, obviously, within the first five minutes, I'll be able to answer afterwards. I don't know if we'll have time to answer. And, well, again, the announcement that, Bazat Hashem, our Halachat in person of the Ben High, will be this Lel Shabbat on, in our shul, on Bet Yosef, on uh, Ocean Parkway and Avenue in the basement by Congregation Sukkot David. We start Minhab by candlelighting time and uh, we'll be going until we change, until about Adar or uh, Purim when we start changing the clock. We will have, after our beat of Leil Shabbat, we will have the class on the Ben Yishayin Halakha as we give over here. And that's it. We have two more minutes left over. Maybe I'll squeeze in one more Halakha. And that is garbage cans. What's the status of garbage cans on Shabbat? So... You decide for yourself. What does that mean? You just learned, we just learned a lot of halakhot now of what is mukseh, what's not mukseh, what is in your garbage. If your garbage is full of diapers and things that are disgusting, and so of course they're mukseh. You can tell me, yeah, but it's grab sharei. Grab sharei is only that when I'm in front of it, I'm allowed to move it out of my way. Find my garbage in the staircase or on the balcony or on outside. So I have no idea to move it now. It's disgusting. It's all full. Now, if your garbage is full of things that are really edible by humans or by animals, so in that case, your garbage is not mukseh. If it's a mixture of both of them, well, you could tell. If it's still things are there, technically edible, as you see, animals could go through it. So technically in the place where cats and animals could eat from it, technically the garbage should not be mukseh. But if it's not that way, then it should become mukseh. Mean to say, if it's full of things that are junk and people don't eat, then it would be probably mukse. In any case, we have to sign off right now. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week, Barzat Hashem. At the same time, 2 o'clock here on Wednesdays for the Halakha Hour, live on jradio.com. Thank you, Aaron, and thank you, Nisim, for this wonderful program.